Hey church family, I hope you're having a great Labor Day weekend. Kayla and I, we're not here this morning. We are actually celebrating our 13th wedding anniversary. God has been so good and so faithful to us over the past 13 years. We're excited to see how good and faithful he's gonna be even in the future. We're gonna continue our study this morning in the book of Acts. We've been looking at what it looks like to be a church that lives to make Jesus known. We've been talking about what it looks like to be individuals that live lives that are sent. Jesse Welliver, our pastor of adult discipleship, is actually going to be preaching this morning, and I'm so excited to see how the Lord uses him to continue to shape not only your individual lives, but also shape the life of this church. We want to be a church that truly exists to reach people who don't know Jesus Christ. Speaking of that, many of you, you've already identified that one person in each one reach one that you're beginning to pray for, that you love, and that you hope comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And once you've identified that person, you've written their name on the Jesus board that's outside in the foyer. If you haven't done that, we hope that you'll take advantage of doing that even today. But because there's so many names that are already represented on that board of people that we love, that are unchurched, de-churched, don't have a relationship with Jesus, we want you to begin praying fervently that the Lord begin working in their lives. Church, we can't do God's work apart from God's Spirit. So we want to ask God to do what only He can do in the lives of unbelievers, and that's to awaken their heart and help them see their need for Him. Guys, I'm so excited to see what the Lord does through each one, reach one. I'm so excited to see what the Lord does through our study in the book of Acts. And I'm excited this morning to have Jesse Welliver preaching here for us. Would you put your hands together and welcome Jesse to the stage? Glory to God. If you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 41. That's going to be our text for the day. Um, My wife and I have a habit at night of watching home renovation shows. I don't know if you have the same habit. Um, It's a bad one. It can get you into trouble. And I've recently realized that this is not a good thing for me because I'm contributing to my own honey-do list. And we've actually graduated from a honey-do list. We've, we've now got a honey-do catalog. So whenever we sit down at, on Saturday mornings or Friday mornings with, at, for breakfast and you know, we talk about what we want to get done, and I ask, hey, what would you like to get accomplished this weekend? She's like, turn to page C7, see right here, this is going to be what we're going to do this weekend. But I think what we like about these shows so much is the transformation that takes place. You take a house that's old, busted up, nasty, gross looking, and then you take it and you turn it into something that's beautiful. And it's an open concept, of course, right? Everything always moves that way. So that's, we just, we love to see transformation. We love to see the before photos and the after photos. The thing is, with home renovation shows, there's a lot of time that takes place between the before and the after, right? There's like months, probably, of work. If they can get it done really fast, you just see the sped up version, right? Little, little snippets. It really takes a couple of months and these people are out of their house while these contractors are doing the work. But we see a transformation in our text today that didn't take a couple of months. We see something that seems to have happened instantaneously with the Apostle Peter. If you remember Peter in the Gospels, uh, he was characterized by, often people say, having a foot-shaped hole for a mouth. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. He speaks out of turn. He says things, and Jesus actually 
calls him Satan one time, get behind me, Satan. Like, not a good look, Peter. But there's things that Peter does that just show his immaturity. The fact that he, he still has a lot of growing to do. And then right before Jesus is crucified, what happens? Peter denies Jesus three times. Denies any association with knowing Jesus. But here in Acts chapter 2, there's a whole different Peter. The Spirit has come, if you remember from last week, the Spirit has come. It's fallen on the believers there. They began to speak in different languages. And people are wondering, what's happening? What's taking place right in front of us? What are we seeing? What are we hearing? And one guy goes, well, I think they're a little drunk. If you remember, they're probably at the end of this festival of weeks, of this Pentecost celebration. They're like, they've just had a little bit too much of that new wine. And Peter stands up boldly, not like the old Peter, but he stands up and boldly proclaims the gospel of King Jesus to those who are watching. The before and the after for Peter seems to have happened after the Spirit comes on Peter. So what Peter does, the Spirit comes and he goes to preach the gospel. Jesus sends the Spirit The Spirit sends Peter to go and preach the gospel. And what I want us to get out of our text today, I think the main kind of driving force for our text is this. God sent the Holy Spirit to send us to proclaim the gospel of King Jesus. Very simple. God sent the Holy Spirit to send us to proclaim the gospel of King Jesus. If you notice that once the Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13, the first thing that happens is Peter starts preaching. The Spirit leads to a focus on the Word of God and the promises of God there in the Word. This is the first Christian sermon. If you look at it and from 14 down through 41, you might think, hey, look, it takes me about five minutes to read this thing. Well, this is a summary of what Peter said that day. It was probably a couple of hours, so just sit back. We'll, we'll go through it, and we'll talk through this, you know, this couple of hours long sermon. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You can breathe. You can breathe. So what Peter does, essentially, is he explains what everybody was witnessing with Pentecost, with the speaking in different languages, with the sights and the sounds that they're hearing. This is his explanation of what's taken place. The sermon is designed to dismiss any misunderstandings and to draw their attention to really what's taking place. God has been faithful to his promises. King Jesus is reigning on the throne. He sent his spirit to restore his people, and that requires a response. So if you'll look with me down in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the first thing is that what's taken place in Acts chapter 2 is that God has fulfilled his promises. God has fulfilled his promises. In verse 14, we'll read down through 16. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, but since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. It's unlikely you're going to run into some drunk people. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So as Peter stands up, I want you to notice a couple of things. He's not standing up as some solo preacher. He's standing with the other 11 apostles. He's standing with backup, with a cloud of witnesses who are about to testify to what Peter is going to say. Peter lifts up his voice and addresses them. This is not some haphazard speech. He says, hey, let me get up and just say a few words. This is a very serious speech that Peter's about to give. Peter's about to explain what God is doing, and that requires them to listen. If you notice, Peter says, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. That means y'all better listen. 
This is essentially, like I said, the first Christian sermon. And it's instructive for us a little bit about what preaching is, what Christians do whenever there's somebody standing here. This is not about the person who's standing here. This is not about them having the best personality or being the most interesting or being the most funny or whatever. This is about extolling and exalting Jesus through the word, and that demands our attention. You see, Peter draws them, as soon as he has their attention, he doesn't draw them to look at himself. He draws them to God's word because that's where God's promises are found. If we want to see that God is fulfilling his promises here in Acts chapter 2, we need to look to God's word. So look down with me. He draws them straight to the book of Joel. This is what Joel says in Joel chapter 2, 28 and following. He's quoting straight from Scripture. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So Peter says, what you're seeing is this. What they're seeing with people speaking in different languages and talking about the the grand works of God through Christ Jesus, what they're seeing is the fulfillment of what Joel talked about hundreds of years prior. This is that, is essentially what Peter's saying. And he says, in the last days, it shall be that God will do this. I know a a lot of talk in Christian circles is usually around the last days and the end times and things like that. Biblically speaking, the last days are the time between Jesus came, Jesus coming to inaugurate his ministry, to start his ministry, and the time when he comes back. That's the last days. You might think, well, that's a long time. But that is the last days. In the last days, this is what God is going to do. He promises that during those times, he's going to send and pour out his spirit. Now, there's something interesting here because in the Old Testament... The Spirit only came on specific people for specific things, for specific tasks, to empower them to do certain things, prophets, priests, and kings. That's why the Spirit was given. Not all of God's people had the opportunity to enjoy communion with God through the Spirit. But the widespread Old Testament hope was that there was going to be a day when God would send his Spirit on all people. Moses talked about it in Numbers eleven twenty nine. He said, would that, you remember Moses, he had to deal with the knuckleheads of Israel. You know, it's like, man, I really wish all those people would have the Spirit of God. That'd be real nice. They'd listen a little better maybe, right? Moses was hoping for it. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesied that God would take out the, the heart of stone from his people and give them a heart of flesh. And then Jeremiah said God was going to make a new covenant with his people, a new covenant where they would have his Spirit in them. This is the hope. And this would come through a Messiah. This would come through through a king from David's line. He would bring in this new covenant age. That was the hope. But in these last days, it wouldn't just be limited to certain people. It would all of God's people, sons and daughters, rich and poor, anybody who called on the name of the Lord would have the Spirit. And then he says that this is something interesting. You, your young men shall Uh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. There's this idea of speaking. In the Old Testament, these are some some words that they're talking about with understanding what God is doing. Whenever God would send a vision or a dream, it was giving somebody a glimpse into what God was doing in the world or through a specific person. It's about knowledge and understanding. So this prophesying is about speaking about what God is doing in the world. And specifically in context the knowledge and understanding in speaking about what God has done through Jesus Christ. 
So, being spirit-filled, what we see here, results in the gospel of Jesus being on the tips of our tongues. This prophesying, this speaking, what being spirit-filled means is that the gospel is always ready to come off and out of our mouths. You know, Trey mentioned in the video that each one reach one uh, initiative and then the board out there. We're trying to put this in front of our church to see that God has sent his spirit to send us to share the gospel with those who are far from God. The gospel is the good news about King Jesus, and we're going to get into those details a little later. But having the spirit means speaking about Jesus. That's one of the things the Spirit does, is he empowers us to speak about Jesus to those who don't know him. So God has been faithful to bring new life, this restoration of the people of God by sending his Spirit, right? So God has been faithful to do this. Now there's a second part of this prophecy in Joel, if you'll look down with me in verse 19. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Essentially, Peter is saying, look, God has kept his promise to begin the last days by pouring his spirit out on the people of God. And because he's been faithful there, we know he's going to be faithful to this second piece which is to return and to judge the world. You see, God is in the business of restoring all things. Uh, Paul says of reconciling all things to himself through Christ, making all things new. If you go read the end of Revelation, this is where all things are headed. History is headed in the, in the direction of restoration to God. But everything else, those who don't believe in what God has done and doing through Jesus, will experience not the outpouring of his spirit, but the outpouring of his wrath. Peter says that in the last days, there will be a last day. There will be a last day. And that is the day when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. There's some terms that he uses here. There's going to be some signs in the he- wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. Um, these are like throwback terms to periods of judgment and events of judgment in the Old Testament. Think about what happened in Egypt with the plagues, darkness, blood. Even whenever Jesus was crucified, what happened whenever he breathed and gave up his spirit? Darkness, right? This is judgment on those who have crucified Jesus. There's a day of judgment coming that is a glorious day for the people of God where God will make all things new. God will make all things right. As one author said, he'll make everything sad come untrue. But also, in order to do that, everything that is old must be taken away. Those who have not trusted in Christ will experience the outpouring of wrath, of God's wrath. But there's good news, because he says, even on that day, Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, no matter your status in society, no matter how much money you make, no matter if you're tall, short, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the question is, who is this Lord? 
If this day is coming, if God has been faithful to restore his people and send his spirit, pour his spirit out on his people, he's going to be faithful to return and to judge. And the way to salvation is to call on the name of the Lord. Who is that Lord? And that's what Peter answers next. God's son, Jesus, is the reigning king who offers salvation. God's son, Jesus, is the reigning king who offers salvation. In Acts chapter 2, 22 through 26, look down there with me. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. See, Jesus is king, and his life and ministry prove it. Everybody there saw it. God attested. In other words, God put Jesus forward as the king, as the Messiah, through all the things that he did. Let's think back through some of those things. What did Jesus do? He healed the sick. He healed the lepers. He even forgave sin. Do you remember the story in Mark? The friends lower their friend through the roof, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody says, who are you to forgive sins? He's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah sent from God, a man attested to you by God. And, he's, and notice what he says. He says, you all saw it. The people who were listening to Peter preach, everyone saw it. They were witness to it. So his life and ministry prove that he's king. Next, his crucifixion and resurrection prove that he's king. Look with me in this longer section from 23 down to 32. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor was, did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. His crucifixion and resurrection prove that he's king. Notice what Peter says at the very beginning. He says, this Jesus, and he's going to say it a few more times throughout this text. The same Jesus that you saw, that we read about in the Gospels, the very same Jesus who said, I'm gentle and lowly with sinners, the very same Jesus who bent down to help the weak, the very same Jesus who healed the blind and did mighty acts, that same Jesus you crucified and killed, this same Jesus was delivered up Notice there's two pieces to this puzzle here. Delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. This doesn't just mean that God looked throughout history and saw that this was going to happen. This means that this was a part of the plan from the beginning to save you and me. God planned that this event would take place. But notice this. You crucified. They still bore the responsibility for what they had done. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Um, who has a younger sibling? Where are my older siblings at in the room? Okay, um, I want you to think back, and younger siblings, this involves you too, because you were the victims here. Um, so, do you remember any moments where 
your parents told you not to do something. And you knew that your little brother or little sister didn't really understand what all that meant. So you decided, you devised a plan, right? I know I can't do this because they told me I can't do this. But they didn't tell him this. So I'm going to go and get him to go do, ah, they told me I couldn't get any more fruit snacks. But they didn't tell you that. So you go to the cabinet, get us some fruit snacks, and we'll split it 50-50, right? You didn't know you were raising such little criminals, did you? But effectively, what's taking place, notice what he says. You crucified Jesus by the hands of lawless men. The Jews had the law. The Jews knew what they could and couldn't do. What happened with Jesus' crucifixion and condemnation whenever he went to trial? Sent him to the Romans, right? The Romans are the ones who crucified him. This is essentially aiding and abetting, right? They pulled the Romans in to help them accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. By the hands of lawless men, these Gentiles, both Jew and Gentile are guilty here. But, though they crucified him, it says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The word here for these pangs of death are like birth pangs. If you've ever given birth to a baby, or husbands, if you've ever seen your wife in that moment, you know she's in labor. It's time to go. That baby's coming. You better get in the car and you better drive like a madman to the hospital. I've been there a few times. But there's no stopping. Once labor starts, there's no stopping that baby from being born, that new life from coming and being and arriving. And this same word is used here. Jesus, it's almost like as soon as he entered the grave, it was, there's already no possibility that he's going to be held by death. God loosed the pangs of death, and, God, and Christ's new life burst out of the tomb. Not possible to be held by the pangs of death. Why is this good news? Because if you're in Christ, you have the same hope. The power that God raised Christ from the dead with is at work in you, and you have the same hope, if you were in Christ, that death cannot hold you either. You will experience resurrection life with Christ. But notice what he does. It's almost like Peter has all of a sudden learned how to interpret Scripture. If you remember back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is there with the disciples for 40 days, and he's teaching them about the kingdom. It's like that was the, the Bible interpretation lesson for Peter. You go back to the Gospels, you don't really see Peter looking at Scripture all that much, but now he's pulling it left and right. He says, let me, let me show you something else from Scripture. And he quotes Psalm 16 from David, and it can't, what David's writing about, hundreds of years before Christ, can't, can't possibly apply to David because he's talking about not letting his body experience corruption. Not letting his flesh experience Hades and this corruption. Because Peter says, look, I can take you to where David's buried. David's dead dead. He didn't get up. But Christ did. He is writing about Christ. He says, being therefore a prophet in verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, key word for just a minute, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. But this Jesus, God raised up, and of, of all that, we are witnesses. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14, that he would always have a man on the throne of his line. And that was a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. Notice the word throne. 
He's a king over a kingdom. He's the reigning Lord over the earth. He has all authority. That's what that means. And God raised him up, and he says, we are all witnesses of that. In verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So now we're talking about his position and authority at the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So this same Jesus who walked among us, did mighty acts, forgave sin, was the same Jesus who was crucified, was the same Jesus who got up out of the tomb, and was the same Jesus who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over his people and over heaven and earth. He has all authority. So, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus. Jesus is the name that we must call upon to be saved. Peter basically assembles a courtroom. He's got three witnesses. He says, you saw Jesus. The scriptures testify to Jesus. We saw him raised up and ascended. We've got all the witnesses we need. Jesus is king. So God's son, Jesus, is the reigning king who offers salvation to anybody who comes to him. But notice, God's spirit is the king's generous gift to his people. Look in verse 33. Being therefore exalted by the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, Jesus sent the spirit and the spirit is what's causing all of the things that they're seeing and hearing. They're hearing the gospel in their own language. I want this picture of an inheritance being poured out. The word poured out, he uses it back in Joel too, is the word for like a torrential downpour that falls down on a dry and cracked ground. That's what this means. God is generously pouring out his spirit on his people. It's like a father who whenever he has a baby, he begins to store up an inheritance. He puts back, puts back, puts back until the son or daughter comes of age, and then all at once, he just, look at all that I have for you. That's the picture here. Now, we could say a lot about the Spirit. This, this text does not justify, this is one of the beauties of expository preaching, which is what we try to do here, where we take a text and let the text speak for itself. It's that you don't have to say everything at one time, but as much as it is a, a difficulty, because sometimes I like to do that, but this, the text kind of sets the agenda for the day. And this text tells us that whenever God sent the Spirit, the Spirit sent Peter to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And he does the same for us. The purpose of the Spirit is both the sealing of salvation, the guarantee that's given to us of our salvation, but also the empowerment for mission, the empowerment for speaking. Notice, he's saying all this that you're seeing and they're hearing, the result of the Spirit coming was there was noise. There was some kind of speaking. There was, the gospel was going out. And this is the result of the generous gift of Jesus. Now, as we kind of round out Peter's sermon here, look with me in verse 37, because 
Peter's sermon, and no sermon is done until there's a response that's called for on, the, on part of the people of God. So look with me in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, and, and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. After Peter gets done preaching, I want you to notice what the question, the question that the people are asking. Their attention is no longer on what was taking place in the first part of Acts chapter 2. They're not asking, hey, how can we speak in different languages? Hey, uh, hey, how can we get those things like flames over our heads? How can we do that? The Spirit has led Peter to preach the gospel of Jesus, and now all focus is on Jesus. As Lord, as the reigning King, through whom is the only way of salvation. All focus is now on Jesus, and they realize the guilt of their sin, of what they've done. And the question is, what do we do now? God has worked through Christ. God is making all things new through Christ. God is saving and offering salvation through Christ alone, and we were complicit in what happened to him. What do we do now? And Peter's answer is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now you may say, well, I wasn't there that day. But the whole reason that Christ came was to provide a sacrifice to forgive sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the weight of God's wrath against sin on himself so that anyone who trusts in Christ can have their sins forgiven and be restored to life with God. That's what Jesus came to do. And last time I checked, we all fall in that category of sinner apart from Christ. His response is to repent. What does repentance mean? Essentially, it means a change of mind that leads to a change of action. But it also means there's a recognition that I'm trying to live my life apart from what God is doing in Christ. I'm trying to be my own king. God has set Jesus up, but I'd rather live my own life the way I want to. God has set Jesus up as king, but I'd rather make the calls and call the shots in my life. I'm going to define what's right and what's wrong. I don't care about all that. Repentance means aligning yourself with what God has done and is doing in Christ. Trusting, turning from that sin, turning from the ways of the world and how you've set yourself up as Lord of your life, and turning to Christ, trusting in him and him alone for salvation. That's what repentance means. Repentance is a two-sided coin, turning from your sin and turning to Christ. And then there's a, another part of the response, be baptized. See, the Holy Spirit works repentance inwardly. He convicts us of sin. But baptism is the proclamation publicly of what God has done inwardly. God, has sa God saves us. He makes us new. He sends his spirit to us. And then we publicly proclaim, because whenever we're saved, we're never saved to just be saved by ourselves. We're saved to the body of Christ. We're saved to be a part of the gathering of Christ's followers, of the church. We're saved to the body. 
So when, we, when somebody stands in those waters and proclaims that Jesus is in fact king or Jesus is in fact Lord, he is the, their Lord and Savior, they're now a part of this body because they're professing publicly what God has done inwardly. See, this is an urgent message. He, he continues in verse 39, for this promise, this, you'll receive forgiveness of your sins if you repent of your sins and turn to Christ. You'll receive forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, anyone in, in history. From this point forward is what, what they're saying. This promise is for you, for your descendants, for all who come after, and for anyone who's far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself will be saved. And then he says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's kind of a harsh word, harsh way to describe the present time, right? The crooked generation. But that's what it is. The crooked generation are those who rebel against King Jesus, rejecting him as, as king and remaining in their stubbornness and their sin. The judgment that Peter preached would be what awaits the crooked generation. They're not going to experience the outpouring of God's spirit, but the outpouring of God's wrath. And I, I implore you today, I ask you today with the same urgency that Peter spoke with them, that if you have not trusted in Christ to save you, do that today. Trust in Jesus so that you can experience the salvation and the restored life that the Spirit brings. Do that today. Church, for us, the presence and power of the Spirit that we see here in Acts chapter 2 does something to the church. It should do something to the church. God sent a Spirit to send us to proclaim the gospel. The Spirit was present and powerful among the church. What does it look like when the Spirit is present and powerful among us? Trey's going to talk a little bit more a little later in the next coming weeks about what a Spirit-filled church looks like. But from our text, we can see a few things. The Word is preached and it's honored. Christ is exalted. Not the preacher, but Christ is exalted. We're convicted and become a repentant people. See, repentance isn't just something you do one time. Repentance is, sets a pattern for your life of continually turning from sin and turning to Christ. Notice it says they were cut to the heart. This is a serious message that deals with reality. We receive the word of God. Whenever it says that some, so many received the word of God, it didn't just mean that they said, oh, that was nice. Thanks for, the, thanks for the good word. I'll see you next Sunday. It means that their life was changed. They received the word and obeyed the word. They received the word and believed the word. That's what that means. What else happens? People start getting saved and are baptized into the body of Christ when the Spirit's at work. We're sent out, readied by the Spirit, to tell the good news about King Jesus to those who are far off. And we're, the question that I have for you are you growing in your boldness to speak the message of the king to those who don't know him? Do you have a desire? Maybe you have a name out there on the board. Maybe they've been there for a couple of weeks. The name's been there. Have you, have you taken a step to share this gospel with them? 
I know one of the things that we tend to worry about is, am I going to get all the words right? We're fearful that we're not going to say the right thing the right way. But y'all remember Peter, right? Case in point example of never saying anything the right way. But when he leaned on the Spirit and spoke, Jesus was exalted. I want to encourage you to continue to pray that God would provide you with an opportunity to speak this gospel of the King Jesus, the one who, was, who lived, who was crucified, who is resurrected and is now exalted and reigning over all. That We would preach him to those who need to know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this gospel of King Jesus. Lord, that Jesus is now ruling and reigning, that he is king over all. There's nothing that escapes his power. Lord, and we thank you that through him, he has sent us the spirit to restore us and make us new, to give us the life that you designed us to have. Father, I pray that we would become spirit-filled people, that we, though we possess the spirit, though you've sealed us with the spirit, Lord, I pray that you would empower us now to go and speak about Jesus to those who need to hear him. Lord, help us become more and more aware that we are a sent people. It's a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Me more than anybody else, Lord. Help me to be a sent person. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rely on the Spirit in these conversations. The next time that we see that person that we need to share the gospel with, that we wouldn't worry about how we're going to speak it or how we're going to say it, but Lord, we would just be faithful to speak about Jesus to them. Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to do so because Jesus is reigning. Jesus is king. Father, as we continue to sing to you, I pray that you would receive all honor and glory today and that you have received all honor and glory as your word has been proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen.